So we find ourselves at the seventh and final church, Laodicea. And each of these seven chief churches, Jesus places emphasis upon different aspects or marks which should characterize a true living and healthy church. The Ephesians, as you may remember, were told to return to their first love, while those at Smyrna are warned that they will surely suffer. The church of Pergamum held their faith, but found themselves caught up in false teaching. As for Thyatira, with all its wealth and industry, it allowed a Jezebel to influence them and water down the gospel. Poor old Sardis, being faced with little opposition, had become lethargic, and although pleasing to man, it did not please God. For Philadelphia, they had little power but kept God's word. They had not accepted false teaching, nor denied Christ's name. But poor Laodicea, this is the one letter in which the titles of Christ are not mentioned. They're not mentioned in the opening description. We hear these are the words of the Amen. Words of condemnation to a church that was neither hot nor cold. About 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia, three famous cities clustered in the valley of the river Lycus. North of the river stood Herapolis, while on the south bank were situated Laodicea and Colossae, about 10 miles from each other. It is not known how this church was started or by who. It is not thought that Paul visited the Lycus Valley, but he did write to the Laodicean church at the same time as he wrote us a letter to the Colossians. Whether or not it grew in its early history is unknown. However, by John's day, it had fallen on evil days and Jesus sends the sternest of the seven letters. Now, it had not been infected by any particular sin and we hear of no evildoers or persecution, but rather that the people of Laodicea are neither hot nor cold and are lukewarm in religion, politics, and any other way. And you could say that this letter is fitting for the churches of the 21st century, for many have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. Many churches are neither hot nor cold. But Jesus deserves better. He would rather we are either hot or cold, and the Greek words used here mean boiling hot or icy cold. It is no doubt that the word lukewarm refers to hot springs of Herapolis, where they journey over the plateau and become lukewarm. You can sense that if something is cold, it can be warmed up. If it is lukewarm, it is sickly and tasteless. However, if it's boiling hot, it is on fire, and that is how we should be. Hot food can be appetizing, as well as cold food, but tepid food is often nauseating. To me, a warm chip or warm roast potato isn't even worth entertaining. But going back to these mineral springs, 
their chemical content made the water not only taste bad, but it also smelled bad. To drink it had the desire to be sick. And this is the exact way in which Jesus felt about the church at Laodicea. And it's something to make us think too. Of all the issues with the churches, the one attitude in which Jesus condemns is the attitude of apathy. It is said that one can write a good biography if they love the subject, or even if they hate it, but if not so if they approach it coldly or with indifference. Of all the things, apathy is the hardest to tackle. You see, if you feel strongly about something, it is possible to get you to see another point of view. But if you have no opinion at all, then it's difficult to get them to go alongside you. Indifference is like an icy death in which everything has ceased to matter. It has been said that the problem of today's evangelism is not hostility to Christianity. It is not that to so many Christianity and the churches have ceased to be of any relevance at all and regard Christianity with indifference and as I said, indifference is the hardest of all barriers to break down. Sometimes it is only a totally changed life that can break the barrier. One who has met the risen Lord Jesus Christ and is totally transformed with the love and excitement of knowing Jesus. Over a week ago, I saw Joe and enjoyed talking and listening to him, hearing more of his story. It was like having a six-foot-four puppy so full of life sat opposite me. Sorry for the analogy, Joe. Some of us, like those in Thyatira, have lost their first love, and we need to repent and move out of the pit that we have dug and rediscover the fire, the zeal, the passion. So what was the problem at Laodicea? It was such a wealthy area while being so blind to its own poverty. It was said there was no more a prosperous town in Asia Minor than Laodicea. Yet the risen Christ declares there was not more a poverty-stricken community in Asia Minor than Laodicea. You see, Laodicea took pride in three things. Firstly, its wealth. It was the banking center of Asia Minor, and so wealthy when it was devastated by an earthquake in AD 61, it refused to accept any government help at all in its rebuilding. Laodicea was so wealthy that it didn't even need God. Secondly, it was a great center of clothing manufacture the sheep which grazed around Laodicea were famous for the soft, violet, black, glossy wool, which helped produce cheap garments, outer garments, and also carpets which were exported around the world. Laodicea was so proud of its garments that they never realized they were naked in the sight of God. 
And thirdly, it had a, an important medical centre where the doctors were so famous that the names appeared on the coins of Laodicea. Here, the medical centre was known for two things, ointment for the ears and ointment for the eyes. Laodicea was so aware of its medical skill in the care of the eyes that they never realised in the sight of God they were spiritually blind. So the words of the risen Christ speak to the prosperity and the skill in which Laodicea took so much pride and which had in the minds of the citizens and even the church, it eliminated the need of God. There is one other fact about Laodicea. It was an area where there was a large Jewish population. You see, so many Jews emigrated to this area that the rabbis criticized the Jews who brought the wines from Phrygia and also used their baths. Even Flaccus, the governor of the province, province, was alarmed at the amount of currency which the Jews were exporting in payments of the temple tax, which every Jew paid, and put an embargo on the export of currency. This amounted to 20 pounds in weight of gold and 100 pounds in Phrygia. Now, if the temple tax was half a shekel, that meant there were at least 7,500 male Jews, plus women and children. Such wealth was found in Laodicea that it was too prosperous to have any need of God. Earlier I mentioned in the opening of the title that Jesus says he is the Amen. A strange title, and we need to go back to where it was first mentioned in the Bible. It is found in Isaiah 65, verse 16, where it says God is called the God of truth. But in the Hebrew, God is called the God of the Amen. A word which is often put at the end of a solemn statement or a means to stress its truth. So, if God is called the God of Amen, it means that he can be totally relied upon, that his words are true and should be accepted. This would also mean that the words and promises of Jesus would also be true beyond all doubt. In John's Gospel, we often come across the words, verily, verily. Modern translations use very truly. The Greek of the phrase is, amen, amen. So, we should take seriously the words of Jesus and trust they are true and to be relied upon. But there is more than that, for he is our witness whom we can rely upon. Now, there are three things that are needed to be a witness. Firstly, they must have seen with their own eyes of that which they're about to tell. Secondly, they must be honest upon what they say and what they have heard and seen. And thirdly, they must be able to speak clearly to those who listen. 
Jesus Christ perfectly satisfied all those conditions. He can tell of God because he came from God. We can rely on his words, for he is the Amen, whose words are true. He can tell this message, for no man spoke as he did. In a nutshell, Jesus is the perfect witness of things of God to humankind. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that something to shout about? I would guess that's what Laodicea failed to do, which is why Jesus said, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Let me ask you a question here. When was the last time you brought Jesus into a conversation? When did you last share about his love and forgiveness to someone outside the church? I know that I am challenged here. Verse 19 is a verse whose teaching runs out throughout the whole of Scripture. It says, I reprove and discipline those that I love. The quotation comes from Proverbs 3.12. But in the quotation, one word is changed. It is the word love, where Jesus uses the warmest, most tender words. And if I were to paraphrase it, it would say this. It is the people who are dearest to me on whom I exercise the sternest discipline. The Bible is full of disciplines which love must always exercise over those whom it loves. Think about how Nathan rebuked David over the planned death of Uriah so that he might have Bathsheba. He didn't need to shout and scold him. He just said it was wrong. And David saw his sin and repented. If you don't know that story, look up 2 Samuel 12, 1-14. It's an amazing story. In the book of Proverbs, it says, Those who spare the rod hate their children, but those who love them are diligent to disciple them. A little later in Proverbs, it says, Faithful are the wounds of friends. In Job, we read, How happy is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, do not despise the discipline of the Lord Almighty. It is a fact of life that there is no surer way of allowing a child or young person to end in ruin than to allow them to do as they like. You see, we should see God's discipline as something not to resent, but rather something that we should be grateful of. In the closing parts of this scripture, we have one of the most famous pictures of Jesus in the whole New Testament. Behold, I am standing at the door knocking. Words of the risen Lord, which can be taken in two ways. Firstly, that it is a warning that the end is near and Christ is about to return. So we should be ready to open whenever he knocks at our door. 
But more than that, we should ensure that we live well and live in love because the judge is standing at the door. However, it is most likely that we should take it as an appeal from the lover of all souls to all humans. Again, we look back to first where we encountered, and we find this scripture in the Solomon Song, 5, 2 to 6. There we find the word knocking. It says, I slept, but my beloved is awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. And here is Jesus, the lover, knocking at the door of the hearts of humanity. It is here where we see the pleading of Jesus as he stands at the door of the human heart and knocks. I wonder, did you know that the unique fact of Christianity has over any other religion is that God is the seeker of humankind. The National Christian Council of Japan, in a document whose purpose was to set out the differences of Christianity from all other religions, cited this one fact, that man not seeking God, but God taking the initiative and seeking man. St. Bernard was a monk in the 12th century who told his fellow monks that however early they might wake up and rise for prayer in their chapel on a cold midwinter morning, or even in the dead of night, they would always find God awake before them, waiting for them. But he would also add that it would be the one, that he, meaning Jesus, who had awakened them to seek his face. Here there is a picture of the seeking God, the knocking Christ, searching for sinful people like you and me, who didn't even want him, didn't even know him. All we must do is open the door and let Jesus in. That is the choice of the world. Jesus knocks and the world either opens the door or refuses to open it. You see, he must be invited in. He will not force his way into our hearts. Many of you will remember the painting of Holman Hunt, a picture of Jesus standing at the door. It is titled, The Light of the World. But did you notice on that painting, there is no handle on the outside of the door? The handle is on the inside. It can only be opened from the inside. Christ pleads, Christ offers, but it is to no avail if we do not open the door and allow him in. Have you opened the door and invited him into your life? Is Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life? If he is, he is your friend and faithful companion, an ever available friend in times of need, but also in times of thanksgiving. Every letter to the churches ends with these words, 
Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So what does that mean? It means to everyone who listens to the words of the risen Lord Jesus, which means you and me. It's a message for us too. Too often we hear a message from a preacher and apply it to everyone but ourselves. It's like we even visualize who it's meant to be for. But these words are meant for you and me, as well as to those who it was first written to. It is eternal. And then, in them, the Spirit still speaks to us as we read them today. So take a moment to reflect on the words of today or any of the other letters to the churches that you've heard and ask God to reveal anything in you that needs attention, anything that needs you to be repentant of. For the Christ who lived in them is the Christ who is alive forevermore and who is still alive today. Amen.